Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes, conditions, and issues. These in-depth yet approachable episodes are a great resource for both private individuals and industry professionals. Our esteemed host, Dr. James Flowers, is one of the most recognized and respected names in the field of chronic pain, mental health, and substance use disorders, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Flowers is the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute, located in Houston, Texas. For more information about J. Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655. And be sure to mention this podcast. Welcome to Understanding the Human Condition with your host, Dr. James Flowers. Hey, Robin. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very good. It's beautiful. What is it? Almost 70 degrees outside yeah. today here in Houston. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Whereas our guest is probably a little bit different, huh? A little colder than that. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. We, we have a special guest for everyone listening, Dr. Paul Hokemeyer. Did I say it correctly? You said it correctly. Okay. Did you do? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Well, and I'd... few do. I must say that few do. So you, I read you that. occupy a rarefied space. I there read that go. in your book. I did. Yeah. I did. I'm going to do a brief bio and then we'll get on to okay. some Great. fun here. Yeah. Dr. Paul L. Hochmeyer is one of the world's foremost experts on resolving the complex, sensitive, and highly nuanced issues that arise among the world's most prominent families. He is a founding principal of the London-based Drayson Muse, am I saying that correctly, Muse International? A mental health and addiction treatment collective and is listed as one of the world's top problem solvers in Tatler's High Net Worth Address Book. In his groundbreaking book, Fragile Power, Why Having It All is Never Enough, Dr. Paul sets forth a new standard of culturally competent and clinically effective care for UHNW individuals, high net worth, and families struggling with mental health, personality, relational, and addictive disorders. Welcome. Thank you. Is there anything that I didn't hit in your bio that you think that our audience would enjoy Uh, hearing? I think that's enough. (laughs) It's rather long as it is. Let's kind of move on. Thanks for agreeing to Zoom with us. He's got an amazing history, an amazing career, and... Most people listening will, will know who he is. I'm sure they yeah. will. I'm sure they will. But there might be a mom or two out there who's like, right. oh. What? Yep. So you were saying, you wrote in your book, much, by the way, I, I love, and everyone in our office reads it. And anytime we have a new staff member, we have them read it as well. It's an yep. excellent, excellent book. But you wrote on there, my work seeks to pierce labels of other that society places on human beings. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, my work is an extension of cultural competency. So I started my career working with people who live in the world in positions of powerlessness, and there were certain labels attached to that. And as I got deeper into my career, I saw that people who live in the world in positions of power as a minority were not were not allowed culturally competent, clinically relevant care. And so I set out to develop a new paradigm for treatment. And so the labels that we attach to those people are uh, celebrity, executive, rich person, um, beautiful person. So there are these objective labels that we attach to a person. And in doing that, we deny them their humanity. And my work as a clinician seeks to pierce those labels and attached to the, to the human being that exists underneath the label to establish a reparative psychotherapeutic relationship 
so that we can meet them where they are in their mm -hmm. humanness and then move them in a healing parent mm -hmm. direction. Mm -hmm. So people, it, it, it's true. I mean, people don't allow them to be human. They're not supposed to struggle, right? So right. What, what made you get into this, though? What sparked this interest? That, what, well, where did this all start? Yeah, it started probably when I came out of the womb. I, don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, was, I was somehow, you know, had the sense of being othered and obsessed and sort of like really curious about, you know, I grew up as a middle class uh, white American, you know, white American male in America. And so the message that I received was very aspirational that if you had all the accoutrements of wealth, then you had the keys to the kingdom and all your problems would be solved. And so I quickly found out that that wasn't quite the case. Um, I was I was always curious about, you know, wealth and money and the power inherent in money. I majored in economics in college and I went into banking and then I decided to become a lawyer and I studied bankruptcy law because, again, I was fascinated by the destructive power in, in money mm -hmm. and how people were making decisions that were really against their best financial interests. I was able to leave the practice of law at a, as a significant age because of a confluence of events. And I went into the civil rights work. And um, I started doing fundraising and philanthropy work for some of the world's leading human rights and environmental organizations. And I saw that the way people of wealth were being talked about was a very objectifying and manipulating. Mm -hmm. These people should be doing X, Y, and Z. And I found that rather disturbing because here was an organization that was doing amazing work on behalf of the planet or humanity. And yet, there was this group of people who were funding the work, and yet they were being objectified and manipulated, and I, I found that disturbing. Mm. I was living in Amsterdam, actually working for Greenpeace International when September 11th happened, and as a white privileged male growing up in America, the security of my world had always been guaranteed until on that day it wasn't. Right. And I was really rattled to my core, like many of us, I think, in the field, and I came back to America, and I started working as a concierge lawyer, and part of that work, working with ultra high net worth families, I saw that there were addictive and mental health disorders that were not being addressed at all. In fact, the families were throwing money at the problem, thinking the money was going to fix it. And mm -hmm. in fact, the money was compounding a lot of systemic issues that were in the family. And then so I, I, I did a master's degree first in clinical psychology with a focus on family systems. And then I did a PhD because I really wanted to explore what that lived experience was like. What does it mean to be a person of wealth mm -hmm. intrapersonally? What's my self-concept interpersonally and then social culturally? And we can talk about certainly what that means in the zeitgeist and the social cultural zeitgeist mm -hmm. that we're living in. You know, we're living in a world where the, the divide between the haves and the have-nots has never been greater. That's mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think I look at the work if we you know, that what we've been doing clearly is not working. And so if we can understand the pathology and the issues that, that people of wealth and power struggle with, and we can connect with them and begin to heal them, then maybe we can create some compassion and empathy and we can begin to create the goal. It's an ambitious goal, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know, what, it's yeah. a great goal. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly worth working with, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What did you find in that study uh, about wealthy individuals and high net worth individuals and their interpersonal relations with themselves? What's, what sets them apart? So I found that there was a very similar coming out process that people, that LGBTQ people come to. Mm -hmm. So so having this identity was very 
most of my most of my participants felt unsafe. Mm-hmm. Like they did not immediately want to disclose to the general public or other people that they were a person of extraordinary wealth. There was amount there was a fair amount of shame around it. Mm-hmm. There was a fair amount of guilt around it, and there was a sense of feeling unsafe and insecure in the world, which we don't we wouldn't think about, right? Mm-hmm. Because we think, well, wait a minute, you eat the healthiest food, you drive the safest cars, you mm-hmm. have access to, you live in the best zip codes, and mm-hmm. and all of that, and yet there's this profound sense of of unsafe, of feeling like they're going to be objectified or manipulated. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, over the last, gosh, I don't know, 15, 20 years of working with high net worth individuals and in our concierge practice, it's amazing working with a 20 something year old who is the son or daughter of a billionaire and the amount of guilt that they often have with them. And, and quite frankly, shame. Mm-hmm. How do you mm-hmm. work with that in your practice? The first thing is what you do, which is recognize that there's the different personality constructs. Mm-hmm. So, as you know, working in this field, right, locus of control is critically important. Sure. So, locus of control is how we determine our sense of identity mm-hmm. in the world. Typically, generation one, the wealth earner, has a very robust internal locus of control. They feel pretty confident in their abilities. In fact, mm-hmm. probably sometimes almost overconfident mm-hmm. in their abilities. Uh, you know, if they lost their money, they'd be a little grumpy, but they feel pretty confident they could make right. it again. Generation two, the people who in- inherited the wealth, or actually spouses who marry into wealthy families, have uh, an external locus of control. Yeah. So who would they be if they didn't have their money? Would people like them? Could they survive mm-hmm. in the world right. absent their wealth? two completely different personality constructs. So the first level of analysis is, let's not pretend that we're dealing with an apple and an apple. Right. Well, we're dealing with an apple and an orange, aren't we? That's right. And so so let's start out the analysis by recognizing that this is a different personality construct. Mm -hmm. And then realizing the commonality in every single human being who walks this planet, regardless of uh, of your gender, regardless of your socioeconomic class, your religion, wants to be seen and heard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a fundamental truth of the human experience. Yeah. And feel Mm -hmm. a connection. Yeah. And feel the connection and feel validated. And so saying that, you know, like, let's just, let's, let's, let's cut this, this, this kind of the the BS, if you will, Mm -hmm. in terms of saying that you're probably, the, the probability of you being successful as your parents Look, that's a black swan event, yep. and so 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 let's not pretend that you need to have that ambition in terms of attaining a financial mm-hmm. goal. But let's find something that you genuinely feel interested in, and have pair and have a collaboration, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that so that dad realizes that. Look, you know, a lot of these, a lot of families that you work with, a lot of families that I work with have private family foundations, and they mm-hmm. wonder why their kids aren't interested in these family foundations. Well, because A, it's not the money, right. they didn't make the money. B, they don't really have a sense of agency in the world. So giving away money while we all think how wonderful it would be, mm-hmm. not that wonderful. Yeah. There's a lot of negativity. There's a, There's a lot, lot of negativity of, there. A lot of baggage, baggage that's, that needs to be mm-hmm. unpacked before before you can get to a place of, of acceptance. Yeah, that, that's right. I think it's amazing, uh, Dr. Paul, that you wrote this book, Fragile Power, Why Having Everything is Never Enough. Every book. single psychologist, counselor, social worker, 
that okay. works with me in my practice. I give a copy of the, the mm -hmm. with in, in my practice. And then we sit and talk about it before mm -hmm. they start oh, seeing patients in my practice. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's amazing. Tell me about your process of writing the book and, and what's the idea of, obviously I know the idea that sparked it, but congratulations on having a best-selling book. It's yeah. an amazing book and I've read it many, many times. Thank you. You know, it was a long and securitous process. It was not, it took probably a decade. Yeah. You know, I, I mm -hmm. always wanted to write a book. Um, I remember when I was practicing law in a big fancy law firm and I was a little grumpy and, you know, about the whole thing because I wasn't, wasn't where I needed to be. Sure. And the partner said to me, he said, Paul, like, what do you want to do? And I blurted out, I want to write a self-help book. Yeah. <laughs> well, fast forward 20 years later. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's yeah, great. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it just had, I call her my daughter. I call mm -hmm. her Franny. Mm -hmm. She's yeah. my yeah. daughter. I'm very protective of her. I love it. So, so I love hearing that, that she's in good company and yeah. she's, she's being, she's well taken, taken care yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. We love following because, you on social media and, and I love seeing the book on Facebook and, and Instagram everywhere around the world and people holding it up. So it's, it's really awesome. amazing to watch your, your, watch your journey, uh, with this book. Yeah. But it was a journey in terms of like having to protect and having to, to push back against exploitation in the book. Absolutely. When when I when I wrote it, um, I, you know, I had an agent and they shopped it around to the major publishing houses and they wanted like the Devil Wears Prada and, mm -hmm. you know, and they yeah. wanted more salacious. And I'm like, wait a minute, you don't get the work. Right. And yeah. so I tucked her away and then. Hazelton reached out to me and yeah. uh, Vanessa Torado, who was the acquisition editor and, you know, understood the need for the sensitivity of the mm -hmm. book and uh, that my daughter needed to be protected, that she wasn't going to be exploited yeah. and that mm -hmm. she needed to have class and dignity. And she also pushed me, Vanessa, to expose my own vulnerability and my mm -hmm. own process in mm -hmm. this work, which as a clinician, right, is kind of rough and mm -hmm. kind of as a, as a white male that's kind of rough to, yeah. to, be, yeah, to I, begin with and and so it was it was a good it, she it was I, I i really owe a lot of an enormous debt of gratitude for hazelden it was the right publishing house for me yeah absolutely you know a while ago you mentioned the apple and the orange right and and the difference between that uh what differences do you see in your practice in the folks who marry into money and uh an experience really quite frankly, stress and trauma over marrying into a family with that kind of money. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a process, isn't it? I, you know, like I do, and you, I don't know whether you guys, like I do a lot of prenups, mm -hmm. you know, I help couples with prenups and postnups and then revisiting prenups later on. And it's a very valuable process. Um, so there's an integration that has to happen. There has to be an identity integration in terms mm -hmm. of if you marry into a family uh, of wealth, um, there's all sorts of assumptions that the world makes around you. Uh, you're a gold digger. You're just uh -huh. there for the money. Um, very dehumanizing, very demeaning mm -hmm. yeah. judgments that are put against us. And we need to talk about those. Mm -hmm. Like we need mm -hmm. to talk about mm -hmm. that because we think tend to think that we tend to think of like the quantitative aspects that oh you married you came from a middle class background and now you're flying off to Aspen in a private jet. You have such an amazing life. Well, guess what? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's lovely and it's wonderful, and there's certain challenges to that, That's right. right? So mm -hmm. I think the work what I try to do is I try to avoid this better than less than analysis. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
because we can it's so like my work gets criticized all the time of that you're just think that you just think that we should be nice to rich people mm. well a yeah <laughs> and b what's the problem with that right and, and, and c and c yeah we should be nice to poor people and we should be nice to middle class people and we should be nice right. to we should really be nice to everybody yeah uh, and so 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 let's avoid let's, this let's better than that. more deserving less than paradigm yep. Yep. and and we have to recognize the duality like part of our work is mental health mm-hmm. professionals is resolving conflict right and yeah. integrating the, the lightness in the dark that's the, right the health and the pathology right mm-hmm. we know that one of the one of the, the one of the the standards of mental health is the, the, the capacity to to hold two divergent retruths right like i love flying private and there are assumptions made around me that that, that, that diminish who I am. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, I suffer from what's called an imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Where, I, And I don't know whether people like me for me or, or whether they like me for my surname or my money. Mm-hmm. It's complicated. It's not black and white. It's not, you know? yeah. And so, so that's the work that we do, isn't it? It is, absolutely, yeah. yeah. In Chapter 7 of your book, it was titled Opulent. Um, you address a sorely needed subject of rapid, it says, uh, rapidly changing field of residential and outpatient addiction treatment, specifically how some centers out there are taking advantage of wealthy families and high-profile people being rich in amenities but lacking in clinical substance. Mm-hmm. So I thought you and Dr. Flowers could touch on that because it really needs to be addressed. Right? Sure, absolutely. Dr. Paul? Yeah. You know, it's all a building on something, isn't it? I mean, I think that, look, this niche had to start somewhere and where this niche started from living in a capitalistic society and mm-hmm. so treatment centers saw oh wow this is great we can have like a high profit mm-hmm. margin uh, and these are all private pay patients because mm-hmm. we don't want to deal with insurance mm-hmm. and so they recognized from a marketing standpoint that they needed to create what's called egocentric environment mm-hmm. what do we mean by egocentric environment egocentric is an environment that's consistent with a person's sense of place in the world so if I'm a CEO of a company and I don't really do anything, uh, I, don't, I don't do anything domestic, putting me in a treatment center where I have to clean my room and make my bed and scrub the toilet, and that's, I'm probably not going to last very long. Right. So I need to be in a community of people where, an egocentric environment, where I have, so, so, what, so let's just back up. So what is treatment? Treatment is basically a frame, right? Mm-hmm. We have a patient who's destructing in some part of the world. We need to take them out of that out of that system and put them in a new contained safe system. Ideally, that system is egocentric for them. Blue-collar worker is not going to do well in an executive treatment center. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, an executive is not going to probably do well in that. And there are all sorts of case-by-case cases. But treatment centers realize that we need to do something different. We need to provide a different level of care. Their motivation was all marketing. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. They, they didn't really focus on, okay, so what? now we have these people. And so how can we, since we're looking at them as a minority, top 10%, top 1%, mm-hmm. so that's a minority population. We know empirically that minority populations have distinct cultural markers. Mm-hmm. Nobody took the, until my work, nobody took the time to, to tease out what those markers are. And so you ask, what yes. are those markers? Well, right? Yeah. So, so and, and there are three, right? Isolation, suspiciousness of outsiders, and hyperagency, which is this capacity to avoid your, control your world to avoid any discomfort. Got it. What do we do when we ask a patient to go to treatment? What do we do? As it cuts against every single one of those of cultural course. markers. Yeah. 
Mm. Come out of your world, right? Because you live in a very rarefied, isolated Mm -hmm. world. Trust a team of professionals who are going to come from outside of your social class, Mm -hmm. right? And tolerate emotional discomfort as we talk about the trauma that you experienced in your youth, that we talk about the need, mm-hmm. your need to have several mysteries, that, that we, we probe and, and, and poke around. And right. so, 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 so the success rate, as we've seen in terms of celebrities in particular, in terms of people of power, is dismal. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's really been dismal. And so clinicians like you who recognize that, yeah, in addition to having an egocentric frame or environment, we need to be providing culturally relevant care just like we provide relevant, culturally relevant care to a person, to a Muslim, to a mm-hmm. Jew, to mm-hmm. a to a transgender person, right. to a woman, right? We have to know, point. we have to be yeah. providing culturally mm-hmm. competent care. Yeah. And it's not better than or less than. That's right. Let's just mm-hmm. stop yeah. with yeah. that already. Absolutely. It's, it's in addition to. Mm-hmm. That's great. This question is for both of you again. Um, what common family dynamic do you see in high net worth families? There's something, some common denominator with them, or no? Hmm. I, I would say dysfunction. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's fair. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on yeah. the other side yeah, of that. You go I'm the other side this, of it. Yeah. I'm gonna say the need to be seen and heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm okay. gonna say that really this, yeah. this desperate hunger to be seen and heard as a human. Yeah. Who is highly functioning, mm-hmm. but just who hasn't really been provided yeah. the the nurturing environment that they need. Yeah. to grow right i mean i we're all on the same page we work together on yeah. cases and you know we believe in the human capacity to heal that humans are self-healing they just need to be provided the right environment the right soil right and to provide the right soil to figure out what that is the person needs to be seen with her. yeah absolutely and and again fill that sense of trust mm-hmm. and and you know we often talk to when we're talking to families and we're talking to to folks uh physicians and psychiatrists and I always say the cornerstone of our treatment and the cornerstone of my treatment is building an authentic relationship with the client mm-hmm. and so that they can feel heard and they can feel understood mm-hmm. and they can feel that you're present and they can feel that you're okay to talk to. Mm-hmm. Right. And they mm-hmm. have that sense of trust. Yeah. 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 But they end up feeling like we're their family sure. and it makes it hard mm-hmm. for them to leave us, which is, mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so, Let's talk about this year specifically. Have you had to pivot in any way, personally or professionally? With COVID, you mean? Have I had to? Yeah, yeah. with COVID. Sorry. It's kind of pivot the way you're doing your your life and work. Well, first of all, there's this. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I I think that you know, there's the embracing of this, which I resisted. You know, I'm a middle-aged man, so (laughs) you know, like, and and you know, I always, I always. She said, you know, I always like, this is saying in French, I like to, to, to smell, you know, mm-hmm. to smell patient. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so there was that element. And, and yeah, personally, it was really rough. I mean, like for me, like, the, you know, the, the apocalypse hit around the middle of March. I was out of the country and I, and I worked mm-hmm. out of the country and I had to come back in quickly because they were closing the borders. And I really had a hard time. And I was, I was finding my footing. And then, like taking on new patients and being, you know, like we, we hold an enormous amount of psychic pain. Don't we? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. like, I need to have, you know, a safe contained environment to do that. And I didn't have that. I was, I was pretty terrified yeah. that the world was falling. The stock market crashed. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
we didn't know anything about this other than it was killing people. I lost uh, a dear colleague of mine, mm, Neil Lasher, may he rest in peace, yeah. passed away in New York. Um, you know, people were dying, so so it was really unsettling, and I had to back. I had to back away. Yeah, I actually had to back mm. away from the work. Yeah, mm. you know, Neil. The day Neil died, uh, it was so. You know, we knew COVID was here. We knew things were happening, and then Neil died, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, mm. "Oh my gosh, this is big. This yeah. is like here." And you know, what an amazing human we lost in, mm. in Neil. Yeah, such a gorgeous, beautiful light in the world. Yeah, Aww. absolutely. Yeah, and we both probably lost several several friends yeah. this year, colleagues. Any advice while writing a book to anyone writing a book? Any mistakes or <laughs> along the way or things you would yeah keep keep at it. You know, you have to be passionate about it. You have to be passionate about the subject yeah. matter. Um, you know, like one of the questions that I asked Vanessa early on why should I even write a book? Like, why don't I just sort of do blogs and just like, why am I going to spend sure. all this time and energy in doing it? And she said, because you really want to do it. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and she was, and she was right, you know, um, stick with it. And then a, another good friend, colleague of mine, uh, David Everhoff, who wrote, um, the Danish girl and has written mm -hmm. another book. He said, you know, Paul, just focus on writing the best manuscript that you can. Yeah. That's Those right. are the two best pieces of advice. Don't be attached to the outcome because yeah. you know, it's publishing as you know, is yeah. you, know, you don't do it for the cash and prizes. That's for sure. You mm -hmm. do it. You do it for the passion. And, yeah. And, and, and yeah, and this is just the beginning. I mean, I really hope that, that, what I've done in this book is put us, put a flag in, in this piece of territory and that we, as yeah. as colleagues yeah. can be can continue to expand this work yeah. because i've just this is just the very beginning yeah we have we have a lot of work to continue to do in this space mm -hmm. we do and and so with that said do you have any plans to do the next book anything following up <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna put you on the spot <laughs> you, you know i, Let's I do really it don't <laughs> I, I really don't yeah. i just feel that franny is just i've got to get yeah. her off to the right you know i've yeah. got to get her sorted out in the world i yeah. she she had a big franny my book fresh book yeah. Yeah. she, yeah, she yeah. had she had a good coming out and then the yeah. world shut down and then i just don't she's my she's my love child yeah and i i feel like i want to get her sorted i think i want to get her properly set up with yeah. with 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 colleagues and mates and yeah. and get her off to the proper schools and, and yeah you know, what are your plans? So, what are your plans this year uh, with Franny? Are you? Uh, I know it's still difficult to travel, obviously, and 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 being out in yeah, person. Not, but what are you planning uh, you next? Know, I'm, I'm not traveling. You know, I went back to school. I got accepted to a graduate program at Yale Management, Yale Yale School, Yale School of Management, and um, I'm studying digital technology. Congrats. Because as a middle-aged man, I was like. Wow. <laughs> And so I, I think that, you know, I want to explore like how I can kind of get Franny launched more yeah. digitally. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I, you know, I tried to find people who could help do it, but nobody takes care of your child like you take care of nope. yourself. You right. know what I mean, right. I'm not going to send her out to a nanny. I mean, I need to yeah. make sure that she's, the, her, her integrity continues. And yeah. so, yeah, I think I'm just going to do that. I, I, my practice is open back up again and, I have really fascinating cases all around the world. Mm -hmm. A lot of empowerment, like empowering mm -hmm. women, empowering uh, minorities 
to, you know, come culturally to transcend cultural restrictions and, yeah. and embrace other minor, other identities. And yeah. that feels, I think I'm in a, like a pretty, pretty deep parenting stage of my life. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. when the world that's is, a, go ahead. Well, no, it's a gift that we can do, right? It, I mean, it sure is. that's what you guys do. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, when the world is safe enough to travel and uh, we're able to get out and about, I'd love to come up and visit and I'd love to have you here in Houston. Love to, to show you Houston. I'm sure you've been here. Show you the practice and uh, take you out to dinner. Sounds that great. Yeah. I look forward to it. Absolutely. Later. Yeah. I have a couple of fun little questions okay. here. So yeah. what's on your bucket list that you've never done that you'd still like to do? Uh, huh. a good question. It's you good know, to know I, the Dr. Paul on the personal level. Yeah, I feel really blessed to have done. It just, you know, it's weird. I don't really have a lot of aspirations. Wow. I wanted to write a book. Okay. I did that. I wanted to get a PhD. I did that. I've traveled all around the world. Um, wow. I think I think the bucket list is to kind of you know I live I live a rather transient life and so so I do have something and it's to, mm -hmm. to, to, to build a nest I think one of the you know what we've all been learning the importance of a nest and the yeah. importance of having a home yeah. and so my husband and I are building a house outside of Palm Springs in Rancho Mirage I did so not I know that the, love oh, it. yeah, yeah. Love that's it. so cool very cool so I think. I think getting that done is, is on my bucket list. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love Rancho Mirage and spending time out there. So, Is that your happy yeah. place? Because we all have a happy place, right? It, it, it is. It seems to be, yeah. I feel there's a wonderful sense of community. I love being in the valley. Mm -hmm. um, I started playing tennis, a lot of tennis. So that's nice. a good place to play tennis. Uh, yeah, so yeah. It, it is my happy place. I love the desert. There's a there's a subtle beauty to, beauty mm -hmm. to it, isn't there? Yeah, so, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So what else do you like to do for fun? You travel, but you can't. You travel, can't really travel. Well, I get right grumpy now, sometimes right? when I travel. I, I oh, travel. Makes, <laughs> makes me yeah. grumpy sometimes. <laughs> so, um, I I I basically like to read. Writing is my passion. I love to yeah. to, to write. Yeah, it's really it's it's it is my creative expression, and I feel so blessed to be able to do it. To oh, you're good at it. Yeah. You're good at it. Yep, yeah. absolutely. So, well, we have to wrap things up here, but thank okay. you so much for yeah, being with us. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you. If someone wants to, to reach you, you how, do, how do they reach you? Do you have? Um... Just Google me. Okay. Yeah. It'll, you know, it'll, it'll come up. Just Google, Google. Dr. Paul Hookmeyer and then pick whichever way you want to do it. I'm not great <laughs> with phone, so don't. Yeah. Uh, okay. I don't really answer my phones because there's always people trying to sell me things that I don't really need. Sure. And so, so email email's best, phookmeyer at gmail.com. There you okay. go. Yeah. And so, Dr. Flowers, if they want to reach you or the J. Flowers Health Institute? jflowershealth.com. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. It's thank so you good guys. to see you. Stay safe. Yeah, Great to meet you. Yeah. All right. Take okay. care. Have yeah. a good afternoon. Bye. Bye-bye.